Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome to this episode of Stop the Killing. We are joined by somebody we've had on our show before. Now, would you like to introduce yourself, Adam? Because I never know whether to call you doctor or professor. Oh, well, either one's perfectly fine. I am a professor of criminology and criminal justice at the University of Alabama. You know, sometimes people use the phrase criminologist, but I do have my PhD, so I'm a doctor in that sense too. But you know, it's really not about the person's qualifications, as far as I'm concerned, as much as the merit of their work or or lack thereof. That's a great answer. Adam, for the benefit of our U.S. listening audience, your accent is not correct with Alabama. How do you communicate down there? You know, I'm fighting the good fight here. In Alabama, they think I'm a northerner because I was born in Baltimore. Uh, I was born right there in the middle and holding on to my uh, accent, protecting it from incursions the best I can. Excellent. Protect that Baltimore twang. Adam, you joined us in season two. And if the listeners want to go back, they can find that on episode eight. It was on whether gun access equals higher rates of mass shootings. But today you're going to be talking about a new study that you've done. Would you be able to give us a bit of a synopsis of the topic of the study? Sure. And and to be clear, I have a co-author on this particular study, Jason Silva at William Patterson University. Um, He and I have collaborated on multiple studies. And uh, and so he certainly gets credit for a lot of this work as well. So the study is titled Sexually Frustrated Mass Shooters, a study of perpetrators, profiles, behaviors, and victims. And this was published in the journal called Homicide Studies. And essentially, Where we started with this was that some of your listeners may be familiar with the phrase incel, which refers to someone who's involuntarily celibate, meaning that really they they don't want to be celibate, but they are. And so there have been just kind of a handful of 
mass shootings or mass violent attacks that have been attributed to people who either consider themselves incels or have retroactively been labeled that way. There was a famous one in California, in Isla Vista, near the Santa Barbara campus. And then that individual has unfortunately been a source of inspiration for subsequent attacks, both in Canada, in the United Kingdom, and elsewhere. And so the natural question was, well, is this purely a new phenomenon? In other words, that we have these people who are calling themselves incels and are sexually frustrated and doing violent things, at least in part because they say their sexual frustration and the injustice they claim to be feeling has led them to that? Or is this really something, if you look more closely at the relationship between sexual frustration on the one hand and aggression and violence on the other hand, presumably if that relationship is really kind of a deeper element of how human beings sometimes function, then maybe we've seen it for thousands of years, well before the internet, well before these online forums, and that this is kind of a a more recent manifestation of something that's been going on for a while. And if so, then we tried to track it in our study going back 40, 50 years. In this study, how did you work out who fell into the category of sexually frustrated mass shooters? Because I imagine that's quite hard to pin down. It is. And frankly, it can be one of those things where you think, you know, if I'm not a mind reader, can I even start a study like this? Because there are a lot of things people talk about. And historically, sex has not been one of the things people talk about. And so what we did was we looked at every public mass shooter in the database from the violence project that dates back to 1966. I think our data collection ended around 2021. And so we looked at every one of these individuals. Basically, we just tried to dig into these people's lives as closely as possible and to look for what we described as a sexual frustration problem. And I'm making a distinction between just any type of sexual frustration. Of course, you know, most people experience some type of sexual frustration at some point in their lives. We're looking at people who had a significant problem according to their own statements or according to pretty extreme behaviors they engaged in that showed in many cases that they were willing to risk arrest or criminal punishment in their pursuit of sexual satisfaction. You know, they were soliciting prostitutes or they expressed interest in something that was illegal, sex with underage people. They were stalking or harassing other people who they wanted to have a sexual relationship with. Those kind of things that weren't just your baseline normal level of sexual frustration that anyone might experience in a given week. You use the term incel and involuntarily celibate. You said some people are identified as that later. So is this a badge of honor for some people? Is it the way that they self-identify with a group in social media? And is that terminology newer? That's one question. And then another question is, you know, you looked back to 66, which with Texas Towers and the research projects that are available for public mass shootings, we have a lot better information post 66. But domestic violence, it's a hand in glove thing in terms of men beating up women. And so I wonder, as we talk about it, I look back to Jack the Ripper, who is potentially, you know, in London murdering prostitutes if it indeed was even the same person, 11 deaths, I think they don't know whether it was the same person, but this is not a new phenomena. So how did this insult 
context come into play? And was it self-identified, self-created, or was it something that researchers created? Yeah, there's a lot of great questions. So first of all, we recognize that there are many different types of frustrations and strains that affect people's behavior. And it's well-established in criminological theory, in psychological research, and things like that. One thing that, that your listeners might be familiar with is the phrase or the term hangry, right? Being mm-hmm. hungry and angry. And yeah. the reason I find that an interesting concept is because it combines something that's psychological and biological, right? But it's so complicated because it's also related to things like entitlements. So you might be more hangry if you were expecting a great dinner and you didn't get it. So when it comes to incels, that's a much newer phenomenon. Originally, I think the first use of that phrase is maybe about 20 years old or so. And initially it referred to both men and women. Certainly the idea of people being virgins in particular and frustrated with that or being in sexless relationships and being frustrated with that. But I think what's changed is more recently with social media, with online forums, people have an opportunity to talk about things in great depth from the privacy and perceived anonymity of their home, right? So I think the real change is that people are talking about this and they're connecting with other people with similar experiences. And that's where especially you see young men going online and kind of putting their collective heads and grievances together and blaming women and blaming society and blaming other men. And in some cases, of course, that is associated with extreme violence. You know, and sometimes those forums like to claim a mass shooter and say, well, that mass shooter is one of us, you know, whether that mass shooter made the choice to identify with that group or not. Well, that's frightening. It certainly is. Yeah. But I think your point about Jack the Ripper is a good one. I guess I would just add that we could talk about mass shootings today. And that's what this particular study was on. But, you know, the Idaho mass murder incident that happened, including the murder suspect who's been arrested, I think that's a clear case of sexual frustration. Can you just clarify for the international audience, the Idaho case? Sure. So in late 2022, there was a horrific crime that became a quick mystery that really captivated people in the United States because the suspect was not immediately known. And four people were murdered in a home in Idaho. And three of those victims were college-aged young women who were in sororities. They also lived there with two other young women who were not home at the time. And then one of those women's boyfriend was also there and was killed. And so we had four people who were stabbed to death. And there was essentially a major manhunt for the suspect. And then more recently, we found out through a tremendous amount of really compelling circumstantial evidence, the suspect was arrested. And I think just increasingly, there are a lot of different things which show us that the fact that he attacked not a sorority house in the formal sense, but a house with young sorority girls was not a coincidence. We now know, and this was just reported recently, that he was a PhD student in criminal justice. He had been working as a TA that young women on the campus where he had been working had complained about feeling that he was kind of creepy and sketching them out, that he had apparently followed one young woman to a car, kind of a a stalkerish type behavior. He was following some of the victims in the murder itself, the young women on social media. 
And so, you know, I guess there are a lot of different things that point to the fact that this seemed to be a man in his 20s with no kind of successful dating history, unmarried, childless, single, stalking women on social media, stalking women face to face, and then who ultimately killed them. And I guess the only good thing as part of this story is that through terrific investigatory work by law enforcement, he was arrested because he might have been one of these people who would go on to kill again and again, you know, if he wasn't brought to justice. Yeah, and just for the lawyers in our audience, it wasn't circumstantial evidence. He was arrested based on a bunch of investigative research that showed a bunch of physical evidence. And Sarah, he was living hundreds of miles away after the crime. You know, you're absolutely right, of course, that there was even DNA evidence on, I think, the knife sheath that was used in the murder. Yes. But there weren't some of the things that we often hope for. You know, there's been no confession from the suspect. There was no eyewitness to the murders who could positively identify him. But the investigation, they just did a tremendous work to put two and two together and find this person. You know, I published a study within the last year or two, looking back at Jeffrey Dahmer and some of the things he did as a serial killer, where he was talking about his addiction. And people at the time thought, well, you know, it can't be an addiction because they thought, well, an addiction is a substance like drugs or alcohol. Now we know that behaviors can be kind of addictive and compulsive too. And so, you know, I guess more broadly, I do think this problem of sexual frustration is, is seen across different types of crime and violence. We found that about one third of the public mass shooters we studied had sexual frustration problems, according to the data that we were able to find. You know, so it really could be an underestimate, but that was far more than I think anyone had believed in the past. Adam, as a researcher, why does it matter to research how common that is amongst these types of shooters? Well, I think you could answer it in part by looking at the extremes, right? So if we found something that was very significant, but let's just say it was in 5% of perpetrators' lives, it doesn't really help us understand the overall public mass shooting problem very well. On the other hand, if you look at something like the fact that 98% or so of public mass shooters are male, then you start to say, well, gee, this is something they all have in common. There must be something going on here interesting that helps us understand why they do what they do. And so just kind of getting a sense of overall, our sexual frustration problems common in these individuals' lives, or is this just a fringe element, I think is just the natural place to start. Tell us, what did you actually discover? Well, we found that sexual frustrations problems were pretty clear among about one-third of perpetrators, but not just that it was one-third of perpetrators, but it was many, if not most, of the highest-profile cases in United States history. And so as someone who's researched mass shooters for a long time and in tremendous depth, this surprised me. In other words, it surprised me that essentially anything could be said about Columbine that hasn't been said 100 times already, or anything that could be said about you know, Parkland or Sandy Hook or the Virginia Tech shooting. And so even though these people have been studied so closely, they really haven't been analyzed through this lens. And as we started to look at it more closely, we, for various reasons that I'm sure we'll get into, started to think, well, wow, 
these sexual frustration problems have been overlooked and really be maybe more significant in explaining why some of these men are deteriorating and why do they ultimately do what they do? You know, pinpointing the causes of behavior is extremely difficult. And I mentioned this analogy of being hangry. You know, sometimes someone is irritable and angry and they don't even themselves know why. But in other cases, they do. And we see potentially both variations here among mass shooters. You know, people who sexual frustration seem to be one of many problems in their lives. And then others who seemed like it was the biggest problem in their life based on their own behavior or their own admissions. Did it shock you how many of those that were in that one third were actually related to the deadliest shootings? As someone who researches these individuals so closely, I was just kind of surprised at how prominent some of the evidence was in their lives. I guess as one example, and we're talking about sexual subjects, so I hope your audience is kind of prepared for that. Um, Mm -hmm. But the Virginia Tech shooter, when he attacked in 2007, he committed the worst mass shooting in the United States history as of that time. Although, you know, unfortunately, we've seen worse incidents in terms of the numbers of victims killed since then. He actually hired a woman from an escort service one month before his attack. Uh, But then she reportedly rejected his attempt to have sex with her. In other words, he was so desperate for sex a month before his attack, he hired a sex worker and even she apparently rejected him. We also know that he stalked women at his university who would not date him. There's even kind of a mystery around his first murder that day was, I believe, a woman and a man in a dorm room. Because the first woman is who he killed and the second person was like the RA on the floor who came to her assistance when he heard noise. So two people were killed, but his target was the woman. Exactly. And all these things, when we look into his life, you know, the sex worker, the stalking, his life in part started to unravel because he had been reported to campus police for stalking and for inappropriate things on campus related to women. And then I guess kind of one of the kickers here for me was when I reread his manifesto and the very first line complains about, quote, the happiness I could have had mingling among you hedonists, he says. So hedonists is a kind of sophisticated word for pleasure seekers. And so this is the Virginia texture in the first line of his manifesto is lamenting that I'm attacking you people because you didn't let me join you pleasure seeking. You know, then that's not an explicit sexual comment, but I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> he wasn't talking about, you know, I never get to order pizza or I can't play video games, right? Like those are things he could have done on his own. There was clearly one thing that he couldn't do on his own that had him extremely aggravated. That's just like one of many examples, you know, Parkland, Sandy Hook, as I mentioned, Columbine, you know, there are many other cases like this that are high profile. I'll just mention another one of a different variation that some of your audience may be familiar with. There were these Atlanta spa shootings just a couple of years ago where the perpetrator explicitly said that the reason he attacked these spa locations was because they were offering kind of sexual services and that he wanted to kill the people there to rid himself of the sexual temptation of seeking erotic services. There's so many different examples, and some are kind of more explicit, like the person's actually saying to law enforcement after he got arrested, sexual temptation was the motive for his attack in other cases where 
we've said, wow, this Virginia Tech shooter wanted to kill a lot of people. And we don't entirely know why. And yet, if you dig a little deeper, you know, maybe sexual frustration is at least part of the answer. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Catherine, when you were doing your research, and I know you've looked at Virginia Tech in depth, where did this sexual frustration come on your radar, if at all? Well, here's where it did. The FBI research that was the initial research on active shooters, which was 160 active shooters, one of the things that kind of didn't surprise me, but only because I was guessing that I might be looking for it. But Adam, this won't surprise you, but you know that was 160 shooters. We found 10% of those specifically targeted wives, or as I say, you know, wives, girlfriends, or former girlfriends. I would like to think all of them were former at that point. But, you know, clearly that was 10% that were documented relationship issues. That was the direct target. Not a surprise, especially being men, but important to validate. But, you know, it's one thing to guess, and then it's another thing to know. And I think your research helps us to know that. Yeah. Thank you. And let me just add to that because one of the things that we found interesting is you can look at the number of mass shooters or active shooters who attack wives or girlfriends or former girlfriends. And that's a that's really the best place to start. But then you have these other gray areas. So for example, that Virginia Tech shooter didn't have a wife or a girlfriend, but he may have attacked people who he wanted to be a wife or a girlfriend. Right. And I think more explicitly. There was, a, I believe, a 2018 Santa Fe school shooting where reportedly the perpetrator, who was a high school student, had been rejected multiple times by one of the girls in his class. And then she basically stood up and said that she wasn't going to date him. So we wouldn't code that person as having any romantic relationship with this 
perpetrator who ultimately killed her as part of his attack. But I guess one of the things we're interested in is, well, these are complicated things, but how does sexual frustration interact with loneliness, interact with experiences of rejection, interact with toxic masculinity? Um, These are all kind of related concepts, but I wanted to point out that who you code as being part of this problem and which victims may be associated with it, you know, is one of the complicated things we've been struggling with as we've tried to do this research as comprehensively as possible. I think that's really great because in our research at the FBI, we found, you know, 10%. And I knew at the time, 10%, those are documented wives, girlfriends, boyfriends, relationships. And yet we knew that there were some other domestic connections, real or perceived. I think that's part of it is real or perceived connections between the opposite sex that we couldn't quantify, of course, in our initial work. And we hoped, as you are doing, further research catches those gray areas to expand out and say where relationship issues or the lack of a relationship can impact violence. One of the things that I would like to just get everybody's thoughts on is, you know, from a practical standpoint, as parents, as co-workers, what do we do to discourage these creation of social norms where men must do this and women must do that? I think one of the things that's fun and fascinating to read in, in your research is just the simple statement that women are kind of raised this way to protect their sexuality and their virginity and men are raised the other way. And that as a societal norm, that it's a question of masculinity and machoism to lose your virginity and to have more sex impacts men in the way that they are societally, you know, pressured to have to have relationships where women aren't. And that leads into this, what can we in society do to affect change from that? Absolutely. And although, you know, animals, of course, have sexual urges and can be frustrated as well, there's no doubt that when it comes to this type of extreme violence, things like mass shootings, there is no corollary for animal behavior. This is not normal or in any way an inevitable form of violence. You know, you have essentially theft, right, or stealing. You have it in every culture on the globe and every culture throughout history, right? But these types of mass violence, often against people who have not really personally done anything wrong to you, that's not inevitable. That's clearly shaped by society. By definition, a man-made problem. Yeah, well, uh, (laughs) Well 98%. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Well, Well put, Sarah. What were your big takeaways from it then? Well, really there are many, but I guess one of the things that strikes me as interesting, and I can't totally answer this, but I find it thought-provoking, is what causal role does sexual frustration problems have in many of these mass shooters' decisions to attack? And I'll give you a few examples of things that I find intriguing along those lines. So one of the Columbine shooters explicitly wrote, maybe I just need to get laid. Maybe that'll just change. And then he he cursed, changed some S around, right? And then he talked about some of his rape fantasies and things like that. But to me, the most interesting part of that quote is maybe I just need to get laid in his suggestion that maybe that'll change some things. It sounds to me like 
he could be suggesting that with less sexual frustration, he might be less angry or might be more healthy. And we can't rerun history and say like, well, if he wasn't as sexually frustrated, would he have still done this or not? There's no way to prove that scientifically. But that's where I start to find this more interesting than just quantifying another problem of many problems that that mass shooters have. Let me give you another example. The Parkland shooter, he had a lot of problems, right? His mother had recently died. He'd been expelled from school. He'd been dumped by a girlfriend. But then when we look at, well, how do we understand the weight of these different factors on his behavior? I guess one way to try to get a better understanding of that is to look at shortly before the attack, what was on his mind. And one of the things we have in 2018 that unfortunately we don't have from the 60s or 70s is we have his Google searches. Shortly before his attack, he was searching for Asian male order brides. He was searching for teen pornography. This is a quote. Uh, he, he typed in how to get into a relationship, how to get a girlfriend, how not to be afraid of the girl you like. You know, these were all things that were very prominent on his mind. And his last text messages were to his ex-girlfriend who dumped him. He kept trying to contact her again and again the day of his attack. And so to me, that suggests that the sexual frustration problems were perhaps more significant in causing his attack, at least in his own mind, than getting expelled from school, right? He wasn't searching, how do you get your expulsion reversed? You know, losing your mother at that age in your late teens must be tremendously traumatic, but he wasn't searching for uh, like how to replace so, my mother's love or something like that. Yeah, you support know? group or something, right? Exactly. And so when I think about some other cases, like there was an LA fitness shooter who explicitly wrote that if a woman he desired would be his girlfriend, he would, quote, cancel this plan, meaning his mass shooting plan, or put it on hold at least for a while. You know, those kind of things are very compelling to me because it makes me think that at least for some of these individuals, sexual frustration is interacting with other factors. And or if they had been less sexually frustrated, maybe they wouldn't have attacked. Maybe they would have gone down a different path, which, of course, is what we all ultimately want. You know, one of the, the most influential people, this Isla Vista shooter, absolutely was entitled. And one of the things that I think stands out in the Isla Vista case as in many of these cases, the perpetrator was not like tremendously poor, right? It was not at the bottom of society from a socioeconomic perspective. This is a guy who had a fancy car, who would look in the mirror and say, I look good. And therefore, because he had the car and he felt like his looks were fine, he thought he was entitled to, I think he said, a beautiful blonde woman, right? So it wasn't even just someone to date, but someone to date who fit his you know, very demanding requirements. It's absolutely kind of a, a gross entitlement where he wants to have something that almost fits a movie, right? You know, if we created that in society and then some people have this oversized concept that they need to be Superman. Yeah, if you want to entertain a, a concerning prospect, I would suggest that maybe social media has a big role to play in people's unrealistic expectations as well, in part because people put a packaged and crafted version of themselves on social media. And if you just scroll social media, it's easy to think that 
oh, you're the only one without a boyfriend or girlfriend, or you're the only one who's missing out on the exciting things you're entitled to in your late teens or in your 20s, you know, that can create a very nasty form of envy and all these other kind of toxic perspectives. And so I guess one of the things we're advocating for is that especially young males understand that you're not alone and you're not some sort of deeply wounded loser just because you're not having sex. If they got a better sense of the reality and discounted the social media portrayal, that that might be a step in the right direction. Yeah, you're not all James Bond. You know, the James Bonds are rare. And also who you are can change. But the healthy thing is to have a little patience with that and to work for it. You know, in this Isla Vista case, the perpetrator was literally playing the lottery because he thought if he hit, you know, the Powerball or something like that, then he could just buy the women he wants really gives us a sense of the the desperation. The thing that always sticks out to me in these kind of cases, though, and just in general in society, is that we've done something wrong at the base level that boys and men are growing up thinking that they're entitled to women. And that's a default position and that they're looked upon as objects. I don't know how we can change that in society. We've kind of made inroads over this last generation but it's, sometimes it just feels like we go backwards so quickly. Yeah, you know, it's hard to argue with that. Absolutely. You know, there are uh, profoundly different norms and expectations for men and women and for boys and girls as they grow up. I think uh, certainly anything we can do to reduce toxic masculinity, yeah. to reduce misogyny, you know, these would be major steps in the right direction. You know, one of the things that Jason and I wrote about in the article is the idea of like, well, what is sex ed is supposed to do. And I guess what we were suggesting is it shouldn't only be about the biology, right? About how to avoid getting a sexually transmitted infection or about how to avoid getting pregnant. Really much more of it should be the social part of it about how to be respectful of others, really socializing people in a way that's less toxic and less entitled. One of the other things that you mentioned in your research, which I thought was great, is the idea that we create these set ideas of what's the norm. Little girls, they need to be pretty, but boys can go play in the mud and climb in the trees. And I think that girls have to be pretty thing. Oh, don't huge, get me started. Yes. It's a huge thing. I mean, it I'm sitting here with totally uh, hair I did and makeup on, right? In some ways, when I look at things like youth sports, I actually think we have made some progress, at least in the last 20 years or so. You know, women and girls in sports is far more common and accepted mm -hmm. than it used to be. But you can make progress in one area without necessarily undoing the harms of the other area. You know, certainly there are still pressures related to beauty. There's a the term lookism, right, related to social standards of what's conventional beauty, and it is certainly not healthy. Here's one of the good spins on the pandemic. Lots of women stopped wearing makeup in the pandemic let their hair go gray, started to just let their hair be the way it naturally is. And that's fantastic. I mean, it really impacted, it changed the way women, I think, accepted who they are. Mm, gray power. There's power in the gray. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> one of the kind of tricky things with all of this is that some of these male incels, especially the most misogynistic ones and the ones on some of these online forums, unfortunately, they view women's progress as like a threat or a danger to them, essentially as if 
power were zero sum game, where as women become more empowered, they become less empowered. And I guess that would be another thing that we should fight back against. I mean, as someone who's married, I think a healthier way to think about it is like the more powerful my wife is, the more powerful our family is, right? As opposed to this idea that every pound more power she has, that's one less pound of power for me, which unfortunately is how some of these more toxic people view it. Let's talk about the subset that you've discovered and what is different in their behaviors or traits from the larger subset. Sure. Well, one of the things we did was we compared quantitatively those public mass shooters with sexual frustration problems, and we compared them with other mass shooters. So that's another way of saying that the differences we found between these groups the sexually frustrated mass shooters and the others were not just a matter of a random fluke, that there's something real in terms of differences going on here. And there were a lot of differences we found. Some were related to their profiles. So those who were sexually frustrated were more often young, male, childless, single, unmarried, misogynistic, things like that. But then in terms of their behaviors, we also saw that kind of more extremely, the sexually frustrated mass shooters were more often sex offenders. They're more often domestic abusers, more often had a history of physical violence, and they actually killed more victims as well. So in a lot of ways, these sexually frustrated mass shooters were a more extreme version of an already extreme type of criminal. That's scary, isn't it? So with that knowledge... Are we able to find ways that we can prevent or spot these people better than we can of the widest group of mass shooters at all? Well, I think the comparisons between the different types of mass shooters is useful, but I think it's also important to keep in mind comparisons with the general population or with the average man of that age, right? right? So I think that's really where the differences are even more pronounced. When we think about threat assessment, I think it just is kind of more evidence to say, okay, well, you know, if this person, let's just say, made some inappropriate comments in class about doing something violent, and then we're looking more closely at this individual's life, I guess what I would say is if that person fit these criteria, as many of them do, of being uh, young, male, single, unmarried, childless, if he had a misogynistic traits or attitudes, if he had a history of sex offending or domestic abuse or other physical violence, that is where I would start to take just the words more seriously in terms of the individual's overall risk. Makes sense. The sex offending, would you have expected that or is that something that's come out of the study? So it was about just under 40% of sexually frustrated mass shooters also had a history of sex offending. So it's not all, but it's far more than the other types of mass shooters. 40% is pretty significant when it comes to such an extreme crime in their past. You kind of see this in different ways, right? So there were some individuals who had committed sexual assault or something like that earlier in life. And then there were some who their acts of sexual assault or rape or things like that came more close to their actual attack date. And and perhaps some of the more horrific incidents It seemed like their decision that they were going to kill people 
and probably die themselves, right, by suicide, embolden them to commit sexual crimes that otherwise they would have been hesitant to commit. Once they decided they were going to kill people and die anyway, then they felt like they were free to follow their other destructive urges. I guess one of the things that is so challenging is that in many ways, our culture, at least in the United States, has become more sexualized over time. So we have all these kind of different interesting trends. One is that women are more empowered than they were in the past, and that's terrific. On the other hand, the culture has become more sexualized. There's been a proliferation of online pornography, just one example. And one of the things as researchers we really don't have the answer to is how do those things affect sexual frustration problems of these extremely dangerous people? So for example, if you're just an alien who came down and didn't really have the context, you might think, oh, well, pornography will solve sexual frustration problems for these individuals because whereas before they couldn't see naked people, now they can see them whenever they want. You know, and yet that hasn't been the case at all. And there's research which suggests that things like online pornography contribute to the problem by reinforcing unhealthy, dangerous, and sexist gender norms and gender roles. So that people who watch pornography come out of it maybe temporarily satisfied and yet with a more negative view of relationships between men and women and perhaps more entitlement about the sexual behaviors that. They've just seen on their computer, and now they want to and think it's realistic to experience uh, in their lives. I guess relatedly to that, and hopefully this doesn't make your audience too uncomfortable, but you know, one of the things we had to contend with with this sexual frustration study is the fact that uh, clearly sexual frustration is not merely biological. And the most obvious reason we know that is because these incels and these sexually frustrated mass shooters are not satisfied simply via masturbation, right? Not yeah. just by kind of the biological process. Mm -hmm. um, so it's profoundly psychological. It's profoundly sociological. And then the good news there is that means that if we can educate people, if we can strengthen people's minds, and if we can create a healthier society, the biology is not the problem as much as the cultural context. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And 
check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew. But after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.